2023 Wolf Prize in Medicine is awarded to Professor Daniel Joshua Drucker from the University of Toronto, Canada. That's what it sounded like a couple of weeks ago from the president of Israel's official residence when the eight winners of this year's Wolf Prize were announced. The prize is awarded to scientists and artists for, quote, their achievement in the interest of mankind and friendly relation amongst peoples, unquote. It comes with a $100,000 check and a certificate. And as you heard, the University of Toronto researcher Dr. Daniel Drucker was the first name on the list. He's only the 11th Canadian ever to win the Israeli prize. He won for his lifetime of research in endocrinology. He's best known for figuring out how a couple of hormones produced in the human digestive system, actually in the pancreas and elsewhere in the gut, stimulate the production of insulin. And these hormones are called glucagon-like peptides, or GLP-1 and GLP-2 for short. Drucker started work on them back in the 80s when he was in medical school. Now, patients who live with type 2 diabetes take drugs that aren't insulin, which were based on his work. One of them is Ozempic, which you might have seen advertised on TV lately. But doctors are now also using his research to treat other medical conditions, like morbid obesity. Drucker hopes these same hormones and drugs could be used for other problems in the body, like the heart, and for Parkinson's. MS, and even Alzheimer's. It's really exciting. You know, here we are 40 years later after we started working on this, and there's still so many exciting unanswered questions with clinical applicability. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Thursday, March the 2nd, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, and we're sponsored by Metropia. Professor Drucker wasn't even planning to research diabetes when he started his medical studies back in the 1970s at the U of T. But when he got to Harvard after stints at Johns Hopkins, his supervisor told him they didn't need any more researchers on thyroid problems and Drucker should see what he could do about hormones. So he did. He honed his research using the venom from a large poisonous American lizard called the Gila Monster, which he had sent to his lab from a zoo in Utah. Drucker is 66 now. He's won just about every important medical prize there is, except for the Nobel. And that is a distinct possibility, too, because one third of the Wolf Prize winners have gone on to win the Nobel. And he also has the Order of Canada. But Drucker says this prize from Israel means a lot to him because of his family's Holocaust history. Dr. Drucker joins me now from Toronto. Congratulations on the Wolf Prize. I saw a picture of you and your, your lab staff on social media. Can you walk us through uh, the announcement and how, how that went? Yeah, th- this was a, a total surprise. And um, one of the great things about this surprise is that I, I literally found out uh, 48 hours before the actual official announcement. Uh, so it was a lot of fun to, uh, you know, hear on Sunday that Tuesday morning was the official announcement and we had some lab members uh, assembled around the computer, as well as some champagne and orange juice and some appropriate uh, snacks to go with champagne and orange juice that morning. They announced it, but you guys should go get it physically in Israel, right? How How was right. that planned for you in this summer or spring? Yeah, so the official uh, ceremony for all of the Wolf Prize recipients is June 15th. And um, we're currently discussing who in the family wants to go or can go. I'm very fortunate. I have uh, each 
son and daughter-in-law has two children right now, so it's not an easy thing to just take off and and go, and we'll figure that out. Um, and then I will invite some uh, friends and colleagues. So were your families survivors? They went to Palestine. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so that, that's right. My, um, my mom was from Poland, and my dad was from Czechoslovakia. And uh, my dad actually joined the British Army and the Czech Brigade in the British Army and went to fight in Egypt for the British Army and was uh, wounded and was evacuated uh, ultimately from Tobruk to Alexandria and then to Palestine because his leg was not in suitable shape to keep fighting. And then he uh, fought for uh, independence in, in 1948. And then um, a few years later, my mother came from a displaced persons uh, camp uh, after the war, having survived. And my father was in charge of meeting uh, many of the boats because he spoke uh, Czech and German and English and French and Hebrew. So he was very useful for the people who came uh, across. And uh, as I like to say, he must have spied my mother, a young woman at that time, uh, and they ultimately got married and uh, moved to Canada in '55, uh, I think, and I was born just thereafter. Wow! So you have quite the yichus. You have Holocaust survivors, Ali Abed, freedom fighters, Second World War veterans, the Israeli War of Independence. None of them were in medicine. Nobody went to to medicine. No, there was nobody in science other than engineering. My my grandfather was an engineer. Why did they, why did you go to medical school? What was, I mean, was that the expected Jewish traditional, you know, your mother wants you to be a doctor and I'm not joking about it because it might be true. I'm just saying. So I have to say, you know, I really liked science in in high school. You know, I loved English and and the arts and the humanities, um, but I guess I was insecure and I I would write an essay in English and sometimes I would get a 65 and sometimes I would get an 85 and I would ask the teacher, well, why didn't you like the essay that got the 65, and the teacher said, I really didn't understand what the author was thinking when he or she wrote that passage. And I, you know, the 16-year-old me would say, well, how, to myself, how, how do you know what the author was thinking when he or she, but, but science, you know, in chemistry and physics, biology, there were principles and laws and theorems, and it was uh, very black and white. And maybe because I was insecure, I just enjoyed the security of the sciences and was able to achieve uh, to a more consistent extent. And then I said, well, what can I do with this scientific knowledge? And I looked around and I said, well, medicine seems to be a cool thing. I didn't know any scientists. I knew doctors. And I just applied to medical school, basically on my own with a bunch of friends. Back to what you've been working on lately. For years, your drugs have been used by, by manufacturers. Can I ask what you get out of it, and this is maybe none of my business, but do you get royalties for everything that they produce based on your discoveries? Yeah, so that's a good question. So the, the discar- let's take GLP-1, which is the generic uh, name for the peptide, um, but the drugs are familiar to people as Ozempic or Semaglutide or Lingero, et cetera. So these discoveries were made uh, around 1985-86. So there were patents filed at the time, um, I was, my work was uh, folded into those patents. Um, I did not receive remuneration. My supervisor did, who worked in Boston. 
But ultimately, you know, most patents have a life of 18 or 19 years. So if you do the math, that was 40 years ago. So for the most part, the original descriptions of the use of GLP-1 to treat diabetes, for example, the patents covering those inventions have expired. And now the patents that uh, protect the drugs are held by the manufacturers, such as Novo Nordisk or Eli Lilly. We have had patents that uh, have been licensed to companies in, in other areas, such as DP4 inhibitors. Uh, the most common name for that might be uh, cetagliptin, which is uh, known to people as Genuvia for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, or GLP-2 was discovered in our lab and is used to treat short bowel syndrome. So we certainly have had licensing agreements uh, and both the university and the hospital and myself share in the revenue. So it has been very successful, but not particularly in the GLP-1 field for many reasons dating back historically, simply it was 40 years ago. Now they called GLP, why didn't they call it like Drucker medicine? You didn't want, could you give it a name or you're not allowed to do that? Well, some people, some people name um, medicines after themselves or name new hormones or things after themselves. That's a double-edged sword. Um, it can sound great while everything looks good. And then when uh, the first horrible adverse events uh, arise and people get sick and God forbid something terrible happens to people, then it's your name on the medicine that harm people. So you have to be a little thoughtful about it. In my case, um, these peptides were named because they were uh, in the glucagon gene. And glucagon is a peptide that we all have in our bodies. It, it opposes a low blood sugar. So it's the counter-regulatory hormone to insulin. And these new peptides were just adjacent to glucagon in the gene. So they were called glucagon-like peptides. Maybe not, you know, the, the most uh, catchy name, but uh, that's what they were called. Are you aware at all of the current situation in Canada for supply and actual availability of these drugs that are Ozempic and Vegovi, I hope I said it right. Uh, I, I read that because there's a shortage, people can't get them in Canada, even though they were approved. What do you know about that? I think Ozempic and Vegovi have two different supply situations. And let's be clear, they're the same drug. The drug is called semaglutide. The doses for diabetes are lower and, and those are the doses marketed as Ozempic. The same drug is uh, used at a higher dose to treat people with obesity, and that drug is called uh, Wegovy. Wegovy is approved in Canada, but the supply internationally is not sufficient to support uh, regular use of Wegovy in Canada. So although it's approved, it's not available. So there was a manufacturing problem in the United States for most of 2022. Uh, only certain doses of Wegovy were available. That supply situation has now been fixed. So as far as I'm aware, Wegovy is becoming much more available in the United States for people with obesity. Um, I'm hopeful it will be available in many other countries, including Canada, but one would have to ask the manufacturer about the timelines. The, the Canadian Diabetes Association's website talks about their concerns that across Canada, the coverage for these medications that your inventions resulted in is uneven for people and also for diabetes-related paraphernalia, let's say, equipment. In the news this week, we saw that uh, the, another board member of the advisory body resigned, a, a colleague of yours, I assume, um, because they're saying that the big pharma is pushing them not to cut the price of drugs. 
and the federal government's dragging its heels on making yeah. drugs more affordable well, for Canadians. I think what we really saw um, crystallized for Canadians um, was our, uh, our need for new medicines during COVID-19. And so for years, you know, it was convenient to sort of squeeze um, the manufacturers of new drugs and minimize our reimbursement uh, and, and downplay the, the need to have access to new medications in a timely manner. And all of a sudden we had the greatest biomedical emergency of our lifetime. And where are the drug manufacturers going to allocate their supply if supply is limited? Well, you can, you know, figure this out pretty quickly. And all of a sudden our sort of uh, more rigid policeman-like attitude towards the pharmaceutical industry melted away because we needed access to these life-saving medicines. And I'm not a party to the discussions in Ottawa, but I suspect, you know, this uh, awareness of the importance of having access to new medicines. And sometimes you have to pay the price if you want access to life-saving innovation. I suspect that has somehow, you know, uh, influenced the, the thinking of people who make these decisions. I was going to say that that's a whole other interview besides that is drug pricing. Yeah. But in terms of what the Wolf Prize rewarded you for, it was your invention of the um, or discovery of uh, the peptides and the, um, the gut hormones instead of using insulin. Is your hope that in the near future, I'm not sure how many years, people for type 2 diabetes won't need to use insulin at all ever and that it'll just be synthetic other things sure so you know we just celebrated the 100th anniversary of insulin last year during the pandemic um and you know insulin is life-saving for type 1 diabetes and we have tremendous research ongoing to try and replace the insulin producing cells uh while protecting those cells from destruction so our great hope for type 1 is that we will replace insulin delivery either through pumps or injections with these transplanted cells that will deliver insulin 24 hours a day as needed. For type two, I think we are going to see less and less use of insulin uh, because of medicines that are GLP-1 based. Um, it's just easy to use. We're get, we have weekly forms now. We have monthly forms coming. You don't need to check your blood sugar while you're on these medicines. You don't need to worry about a low blood sugar. Your control of your body weight is simultaneously helped. So I think, you know, insulin is a challenging medicine to use whether or not you have type 1 or type 2 diabetes. And certainly for a type 2, I think worldwide sales of insulin will gradually go down as GLP-1 medicines become more widely available. Let's talk about the Ozempic. You've been on the news a lot about Ozempic and some of the other drugs, but you've been cautionary. You're saying we don't know enough. We only have two years of data so far, but it can revolutionize and has. Tell us a bit about how that yeah. impact, how do you feel yeah. about that impact? So, yeah, so, so let me expand the concept. Ozempic or Sudagotide is a GLP-1-based medicine. And GLP-1 medicines have been approved to treat type 2 diabetes for almost 18 years. So April 28th, 2005. So in the context of using this class of medicines, 
we have tens of millions of lives of people who have used these medicines and we have large cardiovascular outcome studies looking at the safety of these medicines in people with type 2 diabetes and you know what they reduce heart attacks strokes and death so we're very confident about the safety of these medicines but people who are scientifically uh i think fussy would say well that's in people with type 2 diabetes and now we're using these medicines in people with obesity who may not have type 2 diabetes and that's where we have a data gap now the majority of people with type 2 diabetes who were studied in those outcome trials also were living with overweight or obesity probably two-thirds to three-quarters of them, if not more. But we will have the first safety trial in people with obesity report this summer. So we will know very soon uh, whether or not these medicines are either safe and hopefully not only safe but beneficial for people living with obesity. So stay tuned for that this summer. And you're talking about just for obesity, but I know that there's been some talk of testing these drugs for other serious diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Are you personally or is your lab working on those two conditions as off-label? Yeah, so the really exciting thing about GLP-1 is that, you know, we started with type 2 diabetes, that works. We then moved to obesity, that works. And now we have phase three trials for people with metabolic liver disease, people with heart failure, people with peripheral arterial disease. And as you mentioned, people uh, with Alzheimer's disease. So we are studying those conditions in the lab, uh, trying to figure out how does GLP-1 produce its benefit? Where are the receptors that activate the beneficial circuits? What was the name of the Gila monster that started this? Did you give it a name all these years ago when you got the venom yeah, from so we it? Didn't, we didn't give it a pet name. So the Gila monster has a scientific name, which is Heloderma suspectum. And uh, it has in its venom a GLP-1-like peptide. Um, why it does that, there are many theories we can talk about. But that ended up being the first GLP-1 medicine approved for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. And it's known as exenatide or, or bieta, and it's still used today. So it's a fascinating story. We actually imported one from the Utah Zoo to study it in my lab. Uh, it is a poisonous lizard, so if it bites you, you die. So we had the lizard expert from the Royal Ontario Museum uh, handle the lizard while in my lab. And we all stood back, you know, four or five feet uh, watching this person uh, do what he needed to do. Um, but yeah, it's a great example. We know that reptiles, snakes, uh, you know, lizards have many bioactive substances in their venom. You know, frogs, if they kiss sleeping princess, you know, the princess wakes up, etc. So this is a known thing for reptiles and members of this animal kingdom. And uh, it's it's an amazing story that the first GLP-1 medicine came from the salivary gland of a poisonous lizard. How long did it live while you had it? After you finished taking the venom, what happened to it? So the, the animal was, was euthanized uh, thereafter because we don't have the appropriate facilities to look after lizards in an in a appropriate manner. And um, the Utah Zoo, I, I was surprised that they would make the lizard available to us. But I think in many parts of the United States where there's desert, these lizards are just running around ubiquitously and there's no shortage of them.
Mm-hmm. You did mention earlier, I'll end off this, it is the 100th anniversary, not only of the discovery, of course, but of also the Nobel Prize uh, that was awarded in 1923 for the use of insulin. How symbolic or ironic was it for you that this research was picked for the Wolf Prize for this year? Did they even know that it was, is that on purpose? So again, I have no idea. Uh, it is probably a conversation that would be nice to have in June when I go to Israel. Uh, you know, when really th- these prize deliberation committees are very confidential, and uh, most of the time you don't get a sense of what the deliberations were, and did somebody on the committee have a relative who benefited from one of the medicines in a substantial way, and that became a compelling point of discussion. So I have no idea, um, and one is always very fortunate to be recognized among the dozens of amazing discoveries that are always up for nomination. And, you know, maybe I'll find out one day, maybe I won't. Is there anything in your faith or in your background that, uh, coming from where you do, that this prize means something to you because it's from Israel? I would say a thousand percent. So, you know, my parents met in Israel. Uh, I would not be here talking to you today, let alone alive, if it wasn't for Israel. We have a very strong connection to Israel for all of these reasons. My uh, grandparents uh, went from Europe to uh, Israel, the ones that survived. Uh, We would go to Israel, as I said, almost every year, year or two, to, to visit the family. So I have a very strong emotional connection, like many people with similar stories to mine do, So it is special, 100%. It's uh, very special. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode and this week of the CJN Daily. We're sponsored by Metropia, Integrity, Community, Quality, and Customer Care. Today's listener shout-out goes to Bluma and Jack Goldberg. The CJN Daily is produced by Zachary Kaufman. Our executive producer is Michael Freeman. Our music is by Dov Beck-Levine, and he's got a new album coming out, which you'll hear more about in another show. If you like what we do, why not tell a friend to listen and subscribe? It's free, and they can get it on their phones or iPads or by email if they sign up for free to our CJN newsletters. You can also support our work and get a tax receipt for your donation New donors will be guaranteed to get our brand new Passover magazine. It's coming off the presses very soon. The link to how to donate is all in our show notes. Talk to you Monday for Purim when we profile two ex-Montrealers who are now turning their love story into batches of kosher hamantaschen and more on Vancouver Island. 